the Jericho Network on Westwood One. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to another episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn here on Westwood One. I will get straight over to our co-host for this week, Alan Niven. Good day, Sir Alan. How are you? I'm very well. How are you today, Mitch? Good, good. Uh, some, sometimes I do this long speech before, and then like three minutes later I get to you. I figured I'll get you right in on this. We have back for his second appearance, uh, K.K. Downing. Of course, his new book is Heavy Duty, Days and Nights in Judas Priest. And this is not, you know, an interview that, that I did on the exact same day as the last one, where it's just a sort of a continuation or part two. No, this was done a week later, and we broached on all kinds of other subjects, uh, including the infamous Reno trial, uh, and I'll, we'll talk about that in a second, but just real quick also, we've got Todd Rundgren on the episode. We're talking about his celebrating David Bowie performances coming up that also include Adrian Ballou, which is always great to have, and we will finish it with Wayne Kramer of MC5, but currently on the road doing MC50 the Kick Out the Jams tour that also includes Kim Thale of Soundgarden, Brendan Canty of Fugazi, Billy Gold of Faith No More, and Marcus Duran of Zen Gorilla. So that's a, that's a great little tour right there. But uh, It's Mr. an interesting lineup. We have it a is. golfer, we have <laughs> a nerd, and we have, and I'm not sure if he's a political outlaw or an outlaw politician, but three very different characters today. But yeah. All three of them rock and rollers. All three rock and rollers. Very interesting, actually. And, and and when we get to Wayne Kramer, we'll talk about the, the Guardian wrote a review of his new book that's called The Hard Stuff. And, and they have a line in there that's absolutely fantastic. I just love it. And I even asked Wayne about that. But we'll we'll, we'll keep that for, for later in the show. Let us just deal with a K.K. Downing. Always a pleasure to have K.K. And as we discussed last time, his relationship with Glenn Tipton, a little more eggshelly than I think the casual fan knew. I, I guess you knew it, having been in and around there on the Great White Tour with them and so on and so forth and being more sort of behind the scenes. But for, for most of us, we read that and went, oh, that the dynamic duo on guitar really didn't like each other? Oh, okay. So that, that was... It was a bit odd that we that you know that we had that come up, but uh, anyway, let's uh, go ahead. It, it, it was it was interesting to see uh, two guitar players who at times played with a harmonic precision together that was just as tight as tight can be. Um, but believe you me, there was no mistaking. Glenn owned the band and it was his band and he let everybody know it doesn't that 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 grit between two people create attention and create this like had they been super best friends maybe we wouldn't have gotten the same music maybe there was there was this sort of one upsmanship and oh yeah like maybe that that provided some drive and some motivation to 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 do what they did uh you could well be right um i mean rock and roll bands are an odd animal. I've always had a, a casual observation that maybe has some truth in it, that rock and roll bands that I've, I've come across have been an amalgam of people trying to form their perfect family, having come from very dysfunctional families, and yet obviously they bring their dysfunction of the past to their new perfect family, and eventually it all 
implodes and explodes. Um, but creative tension, yeah. It, it could be. There probably was some between, between the pair of them there. And not to get back to our discussion of the last show, but back in 84 when you were on tour with them, was there a particular incident that you that stood out and you went, oh, boy, look at those two. They, mm. like, was there, was there like a, a punch out or a, a, did you, did you see anything or was it just sort of a general vibe of attitude? Like, oh, they don't talk to each other. Like, what, what was your sort of seeing? Um, actually, at that point, we didn't mix that much with them. Um, the bands were kept quite separate. Um, and we were let know that we were the opening act. Um, and it wasn't until we got to New York that there was much um, socializing together and things getting to warm up a little bit. Um, police were pretty good at keeping themselves to themselves. Um, although there was a moment in a bar in upstate New York where um, Rob Halford walked into the bar and I, my jaw just dropped because I had no idea. He he had uh, all his full leather and stud regalia on and he was towing with a dog lead and dog collar, a very muscular young man behind him who was wearing leather trousers and, and was naked from the waist up, but oiled. And I had no idea that Rob was gay, um, but he sure as hell wasn't hiding it in that bar that day, I'll tell you. <laughs> That's fantastic. That's a great story. Um, I do want to uh, get into with uh, KK. We talk about this Reno trial, but I just before that, I just want to get one quick comment uh, we are mid-September, and of course, September 14th, 1992, Great White released Psycho City. Just a, a quick word about that, because I think it's one of the great albums that the band did, but um, just a quick word about the anniversary. I guess that makes it, what, 26 years? 26th anniversary of Psycho City? Where does the time go, Mitch? I don't know. Well, well in and, fact, the time and, and led... The time led to a Mitch. <clears throat> yeah, um, and, and thank you for mentioning it. Um, far be it for me to make comment on something that uh, um, was part of my, you know, creativity as well as the band's creativity. But uh, between you, me, and the Gatepost, that is actually one of my favorite Great White records, and I think one of the best ones that we put together. Yep. So, so happy. 26th anniversary to uh, to Psycho City, and so go listen to that. But let me get into this KK Downing Reno trial. We all know the Reno trial. The, these kids that attempted to commit suicide. One was was unfortunately um, able to, and the other one, you know, disfigured permanently. It it was it, it is dealt with in the book. But for you, you were not obviously in the band. You were obviously not sued. But the reverberations must have hit the Great White camp and the Guns N' Roses camp and the Motley Crue camp and the, the, the Kiss camp. Like people must have said, oh, OK, um, how did that did it have any effect on you? Am I, am I exaggerating? Am I falsely guessing or did, did was there a, a, like a blowback to everybody? We were all extremely aware of the court case and to my best memory of that court case. My perception was that I thought that um, they were definitely stretching um, to try and put some blame and responsibility on Priest. 
uh, I didn't think it was fair or valid. Uh, trying to do things with backward maskings is very tenuous um, compared to, for example, you know, ACDC had Night Prowler, which we found was the favorite song of the serial killer who became known as the Night Prowler. And for me as a writer, um, I I really wondered how the boys in ACDC felt about that because that would have really freaked me out if somebody was going around killing and supposedly inspired by something I'd written. Um, but again, as a writer, I looked at it and said, well, I really don't see the youngs being serial killers and it's just a little bit of silly speculation on their part, but also irresponsible speculation on their part. And as a writer, I'd rather stay with utilizing my personal experience to try and illuminate those who want to listen to the things that I've written um, as to my thoughts from that personal experience. Um, so in that respect, it didn't intimidate in any way, shape or form um, what I wanted to write about. But it definitely gave me pause to think about, you know, idle speculation is not a good, a good idea. And there was actually a, something that was valid and relevant to Great White in that one of the early tracks that we had success with was called Street Killer. And in some respects, I could go, yes, there's a little bit of personal experience there with Jack because he did end up shooting somebody at one point. But... I sat him down and we agreed that we would shift the content to really nasty hard drugs um, and make it a comment about that as opposed to somebody running around with a gun on the dark streets of Los Angeles murdering people. That was probably the, the, the wise thing to do. Uh, the one thing here that you're going to hear in the interview with KK is that uh, we spoke about the Reno trial and his personal feelings and personal perspectives. And he did reveal something that, by his own words, he had never revealed before. So we are getting something in this interview that goes above and beyond the book, above and beyond Hit Parader and Cream Magazine and Metal Edge and, and all that stuff you've heard in the past. So so, so do stick around and pay attention for that little uh, detail. Um, there you go. So anything to add, Alan, should I, or should we just get right into KK for interview number two? Let's let, let's get right to the man himself. That sounds good to me. Without further ado, here is one of my favorite guitarists from Judas Priest, or formerly of Judas Priest, I should say, the one, the only, K.K. Downing. We are speaking with former Judas Priest guitarist K.K. Downing. The new book, of course, is Heavy Duty, Days and Nights in Judas Priest. And of course, K.K., we had a chance to speak last week, and I'm glad we could do a part two. We we got cut off because we both had interviews coming up and we had to run out the door, or at least I had to run out the door. But uh, absolute pleasure to, to have you back for, for part two and continue the discussion of what is an exceptionally fun read, great book. Uh, definitely recommend it for any rock fan, metal fan, or just a guy who like anybody who likes to read, quite frankly. Yeah, thanks again, Mitch, for uh, uh, having me back. That's great that we can uh, kind of elaborate a little bit. Uh, yeah, pleasure to be back uh, on Rock Talk with you again. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, just uh, real quick, uh, 
one of the interviews I had to do after I left with you was with, of course, Jeff Mantis Dunn of Venom Inc. And when I showed up to the venue at, uh, you know, a sound check, Jeff was there wearing a KK Downing shirt from from head to toe. Basically, it was it was all KK. And it was like, wow, I just I just interviewed Cake and then he started telling me about how you two had become friends. So that that was actually a, a fun little reveal that you and, and Jeff were, were friends. And uh, just before we start talking about the book, explain to me, how, how does the guy from Venom and the guy from KK or, or from Judas Priest become texting buddies? Well, I think the thing is that um, we never... Oh, by the way, I sent him that T-shirt, and another 100 is carrying around with him. I said, you've got to wear it every single day. You see, for you to call yourself a friend of mine, you've got to wear my shirt and go out there and advertise me all over the world. <laughs> Obviously, I, kidding, kidding. I volunteer <laughs> for that work if you want to send me a shirt. Don't worry about it. But, yeah, but yeah. go ahead. No, no, that's good. You see, I, I, I didn't, I didn't know anything about that bag. Thanks, Jeff. Anyway, the exposure is good, mate. Thank you very much. Um, I think, um, obviously, I, I've been aware of Venom. I think they came onto the scene um, in the late seventies, thereabouts, you know, and uh, did very well. And and Jeff was, uh, he was out there with his long blonde hair and everything. I think because they're from Newcastle in England, you know, very strange language uh, accent, but. Uh, but um, quite difficult to understand for a lot of people. But uh, obviously, we went there lots of times as priests, uh, great rocks, rock town. Um, but uh, Jeff had said that he'd been a fan for a long time, but he's out there with the guitar and playing metal, and he's got long blonde hair. But we never, ever um, somehow hooked up over the decades until uh, last year sometime. Uh, the guys were down there in New Zealand, and... Uh, the radio presenter there, Caleb. He uh, he said, that, you know, um, do you fancy get jumping on a call on, on on a call with uh, with a guy that's a big fan of yours? And it was Jeff. You know, we got to uh, we got to speak. You know, long distance uh, conversation. And um, I was saying, the next thing I know, um, we had a couple of conversations there, and then they went on to Australia. Next thing I know. Uh, I get the call from Caleb in, in New Zealand saying Jeff's just had a massive heart attack. He died on the table somewhere in Texas or somewhere. I'm not exactly sure where it was. Um, so that all happened very, very suddenly. And, uh, and I'm thinking, oh, no, this is this is not good, you know. But, um, but anyway, I spoke to Jeff at his home in Portugal while he was recovering. But uh, as we were just talking about, the silly buggers jumped up out of his bed got his suitcase and guitar and took off to England and he's playing like the, the uh, Bloodstock Festival, I think it was. And I was blown away that, you know, after basically um, meeting his maker, then he could suddenly be out there, you know, treading the boards again, um, playing great metal. And then suddenly, next thing I know, he's in Montreal with you guys. Yeah. So, um, and so it goes on. So the guys and I, then I thought, I'm going to have a look at Jeff's schedule here. I'm going to Google it. And those guys are just like, you know, crazy busy, just playing all the time. So um, good luck to Jeff and uh, Venom Inc. And uh, may they keep uh, um, rocking um, that side of the world until I get to see him next.
Yeah, and hopefully, yeah. hopefully, at some uh, some point, as a fan, you could join them on on stage for a song or or lay lay a riff on on their next album or something. But uh, let me get back to this book here for for a second. Why we're here: Heavy Duty Days and Nights and Judas Priest. So, some of the topics we didn't cover. Um, I'm going to go over here to page 68, and you were talking about Rob Halford, and it says on a personal level. I took an instant like to Rob Halford. He was clearly a gay man, which didn't even register with us as an issue. Um, talk to me about that as being an issue, because in 2018, we, we don't really see that as an issue. But as a heavy metal band with a heavy metal genre, of, you know, going for a predominantly male audience back in the 70s and 80s, when did it become apparent that it was an issue? And, and what were some of the lengths that you had to go to not have it be an issue, for the for the lack of a better word? Talk, talk to me about those times. Yeah, well, <clears throat> obviously, even that far back, you know, early 70s, I think that um, first and foremost, um, the UK is, um, well, you know, not 100%. Nowhere near 100%, you know, sexually liberated, but it wasn't as bad as other countries at the time, I don't think, you know, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't one of those things. And and especially like for a music group, I mean, and, and youngsters like us, um, you know, n- none of those things were an issue. I mean, I, I went through school, you know, with a uh, Guys, uh, I didn't know at the time that, that, but, but you know that were also, you know, gay good friends of mine, um, and I found out it just it's, it was not an issue. You know, I mean, we had uh, members uh, of a couple of our very early road crew, you know, and stuff like that. I mean, it's not an issue. I mean, I, I guess being from that neck of the woods over there, I mean, here in the UK, I mean, you've got Amsterdam, which is like you know, a 30-minute flight away, that uh, was very liberated. Obviously, Sweden, very sexually liberated and all that. So, you know, it was just great to have uh, Rob's, um, uh, him and his great vocal ability being uh, a part of the uh, of the band, you know. Uh, that was that was all that mattered, really. And it was kind of good, really, that, that Rob probably wouldn't have a girlfriend that would pull him away from the the band, you know, because um, that happened with, uh, you know, prior to Rob, with, uh, with, a, with a good drummer, a good, a good friend of mine called John Ellis, you know, um, that happened. Um, so there was a, a good benefit there, I think, really. And obviously, you know, um, gay people are very artistic, and Rob was, uh, and, and he's, you know, a very artistic person, you know, with uh, uh, music and his uh, lyrics and... Uh, and so a great attribute to have. Um, and I think we just went on and went on and um, absolutely took no notice of anything whatsoever, really. And then I guess the only time, you know, much, much later on, probably late 80s, you know, um, I think it was fairly apparent to us that Rob, you know, we were touring the States a lot more. And I think Rob kind of had the urge to make it uh, bring out more, you know, awareness that um, that you know that uh, that he was a, uh, a gay man, and um, and and it had to happen at some point, you know. And I think everyone was just, you know, uh, thinking, 
we all expected that this would happen a lot sooner, you know. But uh, and I think that that's what happened to Rob. How instrumental that was in Rob leaving the band, I'm not too sure. To be fair, I mean, lots of things were going on at the time. The band was very successful, you know, doing exceptionally well, and um, and it just became a big. Uh, a big shock to all of us, really. Pretty much a big surprise when Rob said that um, he announced that he was going to go solo, um, and we actually thought that prob- probably Rob would make the announcement uh, to the world press very, very quickly after departing Priest. But uh, in actual fact, I think it took a few years before Rob actually made the announcement, which is very surprising, you know. So maybe that wasn't uh, the issue and the, the main stone reason why he left, but uh, maybe hopefully one day um, I can, we can sit down and he can tell me all about it. Well, it would be nice if you could sit down together, but... Did the record company or, or maybe the American record company, did anybody come to your management and say, listen, we can't let this get out to the public? Was there any pressure put from somebody, I guess, in a position of power, the record company or, or management that says, there's no way you can talk about this. You're going to kill your fan base. Or was that never brought up as a problem? And I don't want to suggest that it's a problem, but but back no, in those days, in that context, people had those uh, thoughts. Yeah, I can't say that we didn't, you know, um, d- deliberate over it. But when I say deliberate, that makes it sound quite heavy. But it wasn't. It was just br- brief conversation about, you know, uh, if Rob decides to come out. Well, the thing is, you know, um, you know, from my own part, I'm sure the rest of the guys, you know, I mean, it's. Uh, you know, it's a free world, and you can do what whatever you want to do. And we were just, um, you know, I mean, I think to to all of us in the industry, I mean, if, if it was no secret, if it was, it was the world's worst kept secret. But like I said, I would go to, you know, I mean. On occasions, we would go out, me and the other guys, you know, to the big gay clubs, you know, with, with Rob. Not as though he probably wanted us to go there, but if there was, if there was, uh, it was just a transport thing, you know, go out and have a few beers. I mean, you know, it was, it was what it was. I mean, we would play. We played at a small club in New York. I can remember an Andy Warhol was there, and we had some photographs taken and stuff like that, you know. And then we went to. That Studio 54, I think, you know, afterwards and stuff like that. We would do all sorts of things, you know. We, you know, um, where there's life and activity and music, it was um, it was a big world, and we wanted to see it all, you know, all of us really. So, um, you know, um, Rob had, had, had done us immensely proud up until that point when he left, and of course, when he left, nothing was an issue anymore. You know, Rob was. Uh, able to do and was before really there was nothing we could do you can't oppress people you know and wouldn't want to I certainly wouldn't want to do that like as I say I had um, quite a lot of gay, gay friends from from school you know yeah and, I, and I'll, I'll finish up with just one follow-up question then we'll move on to another topic but he he does this interview with MTV in 1998 he reveals to the world uh, that he's a gay man of course he wasn't in the band at the time but when you saw that clip, when you heard about that, 
was there a sense of pride that finally he, he he's admitted to who, you know being who he is? Was there a sense of relief? Was there a sense of way to go? I mean, what was your reaction when you saw that? Because I'm sure even though he wasn't in the band, you were still paying attention. Yeah, I, I just think that you know, I mean, I. It, it was kind of, to me, it was like secondhand news, I guess, because it, to my mind, everybody knew anyway. <laughs> you know, it was hard for me, you know, do, being who I am and doing what I do, not to be around people that didn't know that Rob was gay. You know, so um, to me, the potential was that everyone out there, you know, would have gone, come on, Rob, tell us something that we don't know, you know. Right, and and so that so so let's move on from there. Let me, let me get over here to this Operation Rock and Roll tour in 1991. Now, I had tickets for the Montreal show, and then a friend of mine decided that he was going to get married on the exact day that you were playing here. So I so I missed it. But of course, there is a Canadian connection. Whereas you had this gigantic mishap in Toronto. Um, I always got the sense, and I get the sense from the book, that this was definitely not a tour anybody wanted to do, and that it was sort of the beginning of the end, and it, it sort of frayed a few nerves. Um, talk to me about that tour, and, and what was going on where it just it just didn't seem like people were having a good time? Yeah, I didn't... Well, I think I explained the book. Um, it wasn't something that I particularly thought that I wanted to do or I didn't think that we should do because we had done a complete world tour with the Painkiller album, you know, and um, and it was lengthy and it was hard work as well, really. And um, to be fair, even though uh, this tour was being talked about probably six months after the Painkiller tour had finished, I still felt that I hadn't recovered from it, you know, um, and and the painkiller tour was a tour that, you know, wasn't particularly a lucrative tour. It was it was hard work, you know, um, but um, I'm not exactly sure how I felt because I say in the book, you know, much to a lot of people's surprise, I actually did. Uh, I actually did uh, scribe a uh, potential leaving letter myself, you know, um, after this uh, Operation Rockin' World Tour. Um, so obviously something was in my mind about this tour, and I said I was adamant I didn't want to do it, you know, um, there's no guarantee of uh, success or money. And I was just thinking... We've done all of that hard work now with the painkiller. We've got the album, you know, uh, which got off to a slow start as well. The painkiller album seemed to get more and more successful as years went by. Um, so it was a question in my mind, what should we really do? Should we really knuckle down and start writing to a follow-up to the painkiller tour? Probably that's what we should do because I didn't feel ready to leave home again. But anyway... I was talked into it, you know, um, I was talked into it. Um, I'm not sure too much how Rob and Ian felt, but I know Glenn was adamant that he wanted to do it, and I was being pushed by the management. It was just things, the timing just seemed to, to me not to be right. The Gulf War 
was on. I wasn't overly keen on the image of the two with the camouflage thing and Operation Rock and Roll, all geared up around a military type of thing. You know, and um, and Alice Cooper was on, obviously, he was a, a complete legend. Uh, but then we had Motorhead and a couple of new bands, and mm, some, but something about it didn't quite whet my appetite to do that, you know. After we'd just been out on tour with Megadeth, Testament, Pantera, Annihilator, and gazillions of other bands, you know, um, as well as doing festivals as well. Um, just something about it didn't, didn't like, you know, like spark me, you know, like a spark in me. Uh, but anyway, we went ahead and did it, and it wasn't great. Um, I think a lot of the audiences were military when they were back in town and stuff like that, you know, from the military places. Well, because that we, were we had Operation Desert Storm going on at that time, and that's where the, the tour sort of got its name from, or in fact, exactly where it got yeah. its name from. Yeah, yeah, and it was kind of, you know, we've got this kind of crisis going on, which probably, you know, it wasn't, you know, it was kind of, I don't, I don't know why it was put together, you know, and, and what it was there for, really, because... You know, when countries are at war, it's a, it's a focus, isn't it? It's a main focus for everyone, you know. Um, it wasn't great. I, I, I felt that the... Um, that the and I, I've got to be perfectly honest, you know, as much as, you know, Alice is a legend and a great guy, and we, we supported him lots of times, you know. This time, you know, around he was supporting us, except for a couple of shows. Um, the one in... Uh, the last one, as you quite rightly say... Uh, in Toronto as well, where Rob got knocked off the bicycle, you know. That was all accumulate, an accumulation of events that happened backstage, really, because we were kind of given a hard time by um, Alice's organisation, his uh, road manager and stuff. You know, it was kind of... Toby? Not, it was... Uh, you said his name, I didn't. Okay. All of these years. Okay. It was a it was a rough tour for us, and it was, um, you know, for whatever reason, it was just uncomfortable. You know, um, it was uncomfortable. You know, um, we were made to feel, you know, like the second class citizens. I think, and that's why Rob had his accident really, because that last day, you know. Um, something had been said about us and myself and Scott, we just, the rest of the guys said, let it lie, not me and Scott. We just went in the production room and that guy was there, you know, and it was just disrespectful and the whole thing. And inevitably, myself and Scott were running late, couldn't get to the stage. We had to jump in cars to drive there. They started the intro tape and all of that. Rob could have been really really seriously ill because of all of that those things you know never told anyone else that before Mitch so that's you've got that one out of me but that's 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 how it was but anyway that's rock and roll this stuff happened these things happen you know uh, who was right and who was wrong don't know it was too long ago to remember I only know how how I felt and and reacted you know uh, and I'm a firm believer a reaction to an action, if the action isn't implemented, there is no reaction. <laughs> so, right, and, 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 listen, and, and to be fair to the Alice Cooper camp, 
every tour manager is out there looking for their best, the best interests of their band. And sometimes that leads to friction because you're trying to get a little extra stage time or a little extra lighting or more sound or more of this. And I mean, that's, that's, you know, it's just, it's, it's part of the gig and a lot of folks don't see that, but it happens at every show where you're, you're fighting for your little piece of the pie and, you know. Yeah, it should, it shouldn't be like that. And it doesn't have to, and I've done enough tours to know that, you know, with great bands, you know, um, even from from Kiss, Oreo, you know, Foghat, ACDC, the list goes on and on and on. It doesn't have to be like that. It's everything's workable. Um, but personally, this is my own statement on it. I felt we were being pushed around on that tour. Yeah, which is unfortunate. So, all right, let, let, let's go from something heavy to something a little a little lighter and. The, the Turbo album, there was a, a, a huge fan reaction to that, that it wasn't Priest, that it was too Bon Jovi-ish or Def Leppard-ish and all this and all that. I happen to love it. <laughs> I've always thought that Parental Guidance is a great song, and I, you may or may not agree, but I, I just love that song to death. Um, yeah, it was poignant at the time, really, with the PIMC and everything that was going on. You know, I think that, um, you know... Um, but, but but before you answer this, talk to me about that going into the record. Because we, we know that at that time, Def Leppard and Bon Jovi and Poison, all those bands were starting to come out. They were starting to get. And I think it's a natural reaction for a band to want to be part of the in thing, because that's I mean, that's how you get MTV play and that's how you get concert tours. And um, was that an uncomfortable decision for the band to to? <laughs> soften the sound or, or be more sort of MTV friendly? Talk to me about that whole it album. Was, it, I, it was exactly the sign of times. I, I, I'd like everyone to appreciate the fact that when you're in a band for four decades or more, lots of things change, you know, atmospheres change, uh, world events change, economy changes, you change as a person, you go older, you're in relationships, out of relationships. This happens in music, that doesn't happen in music. We're talking about the golden 80s here, the likes that we'll never, ever see again, unfortunately. But the 80s was... You know, I mean, I loved all of the decades, don't get me wrong, but the 80s was pretty magical. It was... There was an atmosphere where where things were were good. It was it was really good. You know, you got um, MTV playing, you know, metal bands. You know, Sabbath, Priest. What you know, they will play at that particular time. You know, um, you know, such a, a great variety of music. And didn't it just seem like every week through your town there were major bands? And a lot of the yes. bands were just coming up. A lot of the bands that you just mentioned, it seemed like nearly every couple of weeks a, a new super group was a, appearing, you know. Um, and they were out there on tour. And um, and there was, I don't think there was ever more of a prolific period, really, uh, that where so many bands became so successful, you know, fairly quickly and readily because of the vehicles of the... Uh, the gigs that, that were available, the tours that were available, MTV, the exposure, you know, and um, and everything led to a pretty, can I say, damn good feel factor, you know, and I think that overspilled into Priest at that time, you know, um, you know, where we were able to do 
this, you know, that great video with uh, Locked In, you know, in Los Angeles Zoo, and and it was fun, and um, and record companies would spend hundreds of thousands of dollars and on doing things like that, you know, just for one video. And so it was a very healthy climate at the time. But it was, the, we call them the big hair days as well. Yeah, people go through that. It was very colourful. It was great, but you still got people, great guitar players like, obviously, Van Halen. Ingo um, was coming up through the, you know, and so many so many things were happening. You've got, like, rock and metal mix, and there was a big gelling of, like, um, Europe and America as well, you know, Um and uh, it was just a great time, and it just seemed like the right time to compile an album like the Turbo album. And um, and even I can't say, but I probably would be able to guess, was our Turbo tour um, um, more successful than the Painkiller tour, or the British Steel tour, or the Screaming for Vengeance tour? Well, all I can say is the fact that it was a very successful tour, you know, um, in respect of sellout arenas. So something was, um, you know, uh, was pretty good about what we actually did at that time, I guess, you know. But I guess Priest, just to finish finish up, Priest has always been that band pretty much every time we release a record, you know, we gain, you know, fans, but we lose some fans, you know, a little bit um, because we're the type of band that we went through our career being really quite, quite a lot more versatile than most bands in respect of what we would put on our albums and what we didn't. Yeah, and listen, well, okay, let me ask you this to, to finish on Turbo. Do you like the album in 2018 looking back? Is that one where you go, yeah, listen, it was, I'm proud of that, or do you look back and go, Oh, okay, we shouldn't have followed a trip. Like, how how do you sort of judge it all these years later? It's quite simple for me. It's it's not just looking at an album. It's looking at a period and a time in my life, you know, which probably could span, you know, it can span from a year, two years, three years, you know, the making of an album from beginning to end. It's a period in your life. What did you do? You know, in that period of time, lots of things happened, you know. So it's the, the whole atmosphere around that people, you know, was I happy? Was I enjoying myself? Were things good? Was the band good? And the answer to those questions is yes, yes. Yes, the band was great. We were on fire. We were, you know, can I say that? I, I think that we were. Yeah, performance you were. Wise. Well, the you Priest know, Live um, album captures that. I mean, the Priest Live album is a fabulous album. It's just a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah and the video that goes with it, we had great stage production. Our look was a bit different. But, hey, you know, we were going through those motions. You know, um, maybe America and Canada, South America, maybe, the, maybe the, those areas we spent a lot of time, maybe that was spilling out into us a little bit and to feel a bit more a part of it. But at the end of the day, we released an album that had very good continuity, had a very good upfill, call it a summer fill, whatever you want. You know, um, it was pretty play-friendly. Um, the tour was great. You know, I mean, <clears throat> the indication that there was a lot more 
there are females on that tour. It probably tells a bit of a story, just to back up what you're saying, Mitch. But you know, um, but you know, when you feel when you feel arenas out like that, you know, it's a good feeling, and there's no discrimination between sexes at all. It's it's, it's good from my from my my perspective. It's a very good thing, you know, um, to have so uh, many nice ladies in the front row. Yeah, the front row got a, got a lot more attractive. Um, let me ask you about about make because you talk about Johnny Be Good and and the soundtrack. So so let me talk about soundtracks, especially at that time, because you look at Simple Minds. Don't you forget about me? Huey Lewis, Power of Love, Berlin, to Take My Breath Away. At that time in the eighties, it was almost like a, a prize to have a song included in in a soundtrack. There was a, a marketing angle because MTV could play the video and show clips of the movie, and everybody, you know, the movie house was com- was happy, and the record company. Um, when it got to you, was there a desire to be on a soundtrack? Was, or, or did the record company just come to you and say, "We want you to do this"? Um, talk to me about that and and having Johnny Be Good done and and being part of a soundtrack and 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 the marketing angle to it because we, we have to be honest, there was a very specific marketing angle to soundtracks for every band back then. Absolutely, um, absolutely, but. This is uh, our management and uh, our record company working very well for the band, you know, by making this introduction. Uh, Probably wasn't explained um, that well to us, really, what the opportunity was. I know that we were in the record plant and I heard that, you know, a, a production company was doing a movie. I don't know if they told me the title. You know, if they'd have told me Tom Cruise was in it, I wouldn't have known who he was at the time. You know, I didn't know what the budget was or anything about it. I was just so engrossed in trying to wrap up the record, really, to be fair, you know. Um, next thing I know, Glenn and Jane went down to see the uh, the producers somewhere in L.A. They specifically requested the, 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 the song Reckless for the movie. Um, but Glenn and Jane uh, presumably explained that you know we'd, we'd kind of wrapped up the album and formatted it and didn't really want to disrupt it and would they be interested in uh, a few leftover tracks uh, that we had and I think they were left with the production company for them to uh, consider but they passed on those and, and that was the end of that really I didn't know too much about it before in the middle or after really it was just um it, you know, it, it didn't happen. Um, and then, of course, the movie comes out. It's You find more out about it. You think, oh, yeah, I, I can really hear that song, Reckless, in that movie. And it should have been there. But, you know, it wasn't. Uh, wasn't to be. And, of course, there we go. The thing happens again. There's a new movie coming out. Michael Anthony Hall, new star. Johnny Be Good. It's going to be this. Can you do a version of Johnny Be Good for the movie, and we thought, don't really want to miss out, really. I wasn't, personally, I wasn't really keen on doing a blues classic at all, you know, not particularly Judas Priest, you know. Um, but but we did it, and I think it came out pretty good. Um, and um, But obviously the movie um, was not successful at all. Uh, and so these things happen. You win some, but 
looks like you lose most, you know, in respect to um, um, movie credentials. Um, maybe one day it will happen. I think we had a song on Bride of Chucky, which I'm quite pleased about. Yeah, see. Um, so, so, so let me let me take away from from Johnny Be Good here and go to something a little more uh, heavy that that's mentioned in the book. You talk, of course, about the the Reno trial uh, that took place, where the band was was you know being sued and being. Um, talk to me about that trial and and the emotional toll it took on you because that could not have been easy. And at and at the heart of it. There were these kids that 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 went through this thing, and you, I mean, it's it's an uncomfortable situation. So so talk to me about that, and 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 writing about it in the book because it, it obviously isn't something that you can just sort of brush aside. There's there's a very serious context. Absolutely, and um, and I would like to point out that obviously I do go into some detail about my upbringing, you know, yep, and how things could have gone. Could have been very different for me. Um, you know, I saw definite similarities in my upbringing and and the two lads. You know, uh, in the households uh, that they grew up in. You know, with their parents, uh, there was obviously the the one father would lock the son in the garage and take a leather strap to him and. So there was no escape and all that sort of stuff, and and this can lead to a bad, obviously a, a bad situation. And and um, and with the two lads, unfortunate lads that were involved here, you know, um, it came out during the trial that things had gone bad for them to the point where things were boiling over, um, you know, uh, in, in a serious, seriously bad way. Um, they had arguments with the bosses at work and there was obviously drugs involved and, and lots of different things. They managed to get firearms from somewhere. Um, fortunately for me, I managed to escape from my parents uh, at a very early age and uh, start a new life and I found music and, and, uh, and things went well for me, but these two lads were stuck. Uh, Kind of in a no way out situation, I think, and um, and unfortunately, this event took place, um, and um, it's still there, Mitch. Yes, yes, I am. I'm listening quietly. Oh, yeah, sorry, yeah. Um, it's just obviously I'm in England, and sometimes the fans do cut out. And yeah, I'm kind of getting deep into this, you know, because I really live in these moments. Um, but it's something that we have to go through. I mean, when I first heard about it, I thought, this can't be real. This has got to be some sort of a joke. How can you be put on trial for making music? How does that work? And then I found out about the claim of subliminal message, and I was thinking, what the hell is that? You know, I mean, and then I found out about that, what that was, and I'm thinking, oh, it all sounds a bit spooky to me, you know. Um, and then kind of you come to start to look at the bigger picture. Well, did Nozzy just suddenly have problems with authorities and stuff like that? Is this a, a big part? Of, is this a part of all of that thing? And, and I think the conclusion is, well, probably, yes, it is. You know, somebody, um, it, uh, somebody's been kind of um, targeted to be, uh, you know, um, to, to take a fall in some way, you know, and... Um, Representatives of rock and metal, you know, whether it's Aussie or somebody, some 
something's going to happen. So this is probably something we're going to have to deal with and go through uh, through with. And uh, and we did, and it was an ordeal. It was lengthy. Obviously, we'd just finished the Painkiller album. That was in the bag, and we were just desperate to get out on tour. We had a tour looming up, but we had to spend a month dealing with that, you know. Um, but it went through its paces there, you know, um, lots of question marks. Um, I think we'd heard stories of ambulance chasing lawyers, you know, we don't know what they concocted. I mean, was that album, was that record? They claimed that the record was on one of the lads on the turntable in his room, you know, uh, you know, on the evening of the, you know, the tragic event or, or thereabouts. I mean, is that true? We never knew. Um, <clears throat> but at the end of the day, we all marched into a recording studio and we were able to quite easily illustrate how the sounds on the record, you know, um, what was causing uh, these expressive sounds that they were um, interpreting as do it. So we were able to illustrate that, and luckily for us, the judge was a pretty clever and sensible guy, and he could see that it all made sense, you know. And then even more so when we actually took the liberty of playing a lot of stuff backwards anyway, and we found uh, a lot of, you know, uh, audible uh, messages from other artists. I think one was Dinah Ross. I mean, quote me if I'm wrong on that one, but, you know, other artists. Um, to show that phonetically these, uh, shall we call them, mistakes or whatever, these kind of things can happen. And so it was all a bit ridiculous, but look, we went through it, and I do talk about it more and more now, um, about the fact that it was probably for the good of mankind, and I mean the mankind of of all rock and metal fans, you know, that um, fortunately the whole thing seems to have been put to rest now after that trial, which is uh, something I'm sure that we're all very relieved to know. Yeah, absolutely. Now, now, let me just quickly take up on something that you said during that answer. You said that you found music, and, you know, that that, that to me is very important because I, I've always felt that music has a, a curative effect, a, a psychological effect, and uh, talk to me about, about finding music and, and what it meant for you, because it, it's not just something that you play in the car. It, it really is a powerful force, for, for the lack of a better word, right? Yeah, it's, I mean, you know, rightly or wrongly for me to say this, but it, it's, it's kind of been my religion. It was my salvation. It was my everything, really, that, that gave me a direction in life. It put me on a on a path, on a righteous path, I guess. You know, because I wasn't. You know, I did some things I'm not proud of when I was a, when I was younger. I'm sure that we all did. You know, and um, and things could have gone either way for me. Um, but a lot. Uh, I, I'm, I'm glad that I did the books. I got. I talk about my childhood and everything and a mess that I was in and. And I found a way out of it, and and there is a message there. I think to a lot of um, youngsters, I was able to escape when I was fifteen at whatever cost. If you have to go out there, 
trust me, and clean toilets and do whatever you have to do, even as a stepping stone. If you're in a bad situation, you know, um, as I was, you know, in the so-called family home, you need to get away from it. You need to get away from it. And um, because it, it's not going to get any better, guys. That, that Well, that's that was what I thought. Because once it had gone past a certain point, once the decay had set in, you know, in your parents' relationship and stuff, does it get any better? You know, well, my guess was it wasn't. So you must go. You must leave. And I say that because my two dear sisters, um, they stayed and they've, you know, and it's, they've been more affected. Um, you know, I don't go into uh, deeply into that, into the book. Um, but this is how I know they stayed, I left, and you must leave and get normality surrounding you like a big security blanket. You'll find this will work wonders. Get out there with with people that you consider a normal and find out things. Your job might be absolutely horrendous and unbearable, but it doesn't matter. Make some money, put a roof over your head, survive, and, and you know, do nice things on your day off like I did. You know, go to festivals, you know. I, I lived for just getting out there. Whenever I wasn't working, I would, I would go to a club or go to the record store and, you know, and listen to music because that was back in the day when music is all we had, but it, it was music was all that we wanted or needed. Strangely enough, we didn't have computers and all of that. We didn't have excess money. We couldn't do that much, but music was was a world, <clears throat> and that's why it was my saving grace. And um, and it was something that I just adhered to more and more with every day. I guess it's like when people do, let's say, discover a religion. I haven't done so yet. Um, I'm not sure I ever will, but, you know, if you do, you know, the more the more you're around something that you really believe in, the, the, the stronger that can wrap around you and protect you. And I think that that's probably... Um, I'm not sounding like a priest. <laughs> no, no, but I, but, but I, I relate entirely. I mean, you know, I, I didn't have I didn't have a, a rough uh, upbringing, but we lived in a place that was essentially a forest, and there was nothing around us to, to get to a supermarket or or clothes. You know, it was 20 kilometers down the road. So, so, so music at that time filled in all the voids for me because there wasn't internet. You know, there wasn't cable TV. We had three channels and 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 squirrels. And so, you, you know, uh, music was a lifesaver in a different way than from you. But but same same power of it kept me sane. You know, it kept me. Yeah. You know. Well, and then the bigger picture is, you know, you travel the world and you go around the world as as I have done. And even now, isn't it so wonderful that everybody can reach out to each other? In all of the countries, it doesn't matter what's going on, you know. I mean, we get, <clears throat> you know, guys, there are heavy metal bands in Iran. They exist. You know, um, the other day I saw, and everybody's welcome to Google it, there's um, a very young Muslim girl with all the, 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 the black gear on there, and, and she's playing a guitar, and she must be 10, 11 years old. I don't know. I don't know. But she's playing painkiller on the guitar, and... You know, um, and also, um, I think she plays a, a Metallica song as well. You know, so, I mean, that is such 
So that's such a massive reward for me, you know. And and we talk about music being a religion. Well, you know, the, the valuable qualities, you know, in a religion or in our music, there's so many common denominators. It isn't true. Bringing people together, you know, <clears throat> um, from all walks of life, you know, is, is absolute. And this has been going on for a long, long time. Um, and it's getting better and better and better. You know, and uh, it's very rewarding for me. You know, I'm getting, as we all are now, getting older. Um, but I'm going to be 67 this month, and you know, before before I leave this uh, wonderful musical planet, I'd like to see a lot more of what I'm looking at now. You know, on on the internet and YouTube with uh, with people from all over the countries that you know you might not even think of one day in your life, and then you get um, youngsters from from a country that you may ne- never even heard of, you know, uh, joining in, you know, as one with us, with the music that we know and love. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I, I'll finish on this today because you've given me over an hour and a half of the last two two weeks. So, so um, 2005, Angel of Retribution comes out, first album in 15 years with, with Rob. Absolutely love that album. Everybody's screaming, The Priest is back, and every, the tour was great. Um, and then three years later, you you move on to Nostradamus. Now, to me, that was an incredibly huge gamble because you you had to rebuild the momentum. And and I personally didn't know didn't think that going into a, a what do you call it a concept record so on and so forth was a the, the proper path. But talk to me about that decision and that album. And it is the last one you played on. Was it somewhat? part of the equation of why you walked away because the musical direction was sort of strange or, or are you very proud yeah. of it? And I'm just full of hoey and you're like, no, Mitch, you're wrong. It's a great album. What are you talking like, about? Yeah, yes, yes. Uh, to me, it's a great album. It's a great musical work. I take it completely on board about what you're saying. Not really <clears throat> what the fans were wanting or expecting. And I completely take that on board. But as a musical work, you know, um, it was very rewarding to do that. I hope everyone can, you know, it's, you know, I hope, it, I hope people don't consider it that it was such a selfish thing to do that musical work. But, um, you know, I could probably talk about that album all day long and the reasons for doing that album. Nobody can deny we, we were able to showcase uh, Rob as great as he is. Rob, hit even hit new dimensions on that record. You know, it was a great opportunity to to even showcase uh, Rob's vocal ability even more so than we'd ever done before. Um, same with our, hopefully, our musical ability that we are, you know, um, able to do something like that, you know. Um, but as the concept was, it was meant to go out, <clears throat> you know, um, into... Uh, into theatres and, and, and establishments around the world, you know, and it would have been a great show to see to see Rob, great theatrics, you know, and illusions with Rob being and uh, playing the part of Nostradamus with us doing the music and everything. It would have been quite something to see, I think very entertaining for people of all ages. Um, so it was very much being geared up to something that was going to be very dramatic, emotional, just like any great opera or, you know, but 
our chance, our chance, if everybody can just give me one opportunity to say it, to create something different in a music place that we don't always go to, we don't go to either. You know, um, we have lots of great musicals, you know, um, <clears throat> we're going to great prestigious venues like the Royal Albert Hall, Carnegie Hall, you know, great theatres around the place. But, you know, um, to create something and not let everyone else have all of the spoils, you know, uh, the guys Phantom of the Opera and Cats and all of these musicals and stuff like that. You know, why can't we, Judas Priest, put something that's rock and metal into that, into that, into that musical and entertainment place? Okay, we might have been going off at a tangent, getting on the wrong track, you know, as far as everybody wanting a Judas Priest record. But looking at the bigger picture of broadening the scope and the horizons of what a rock and metal band can do, you know, um, it's an opportunity kind of missed um, through no fault of anyone's except uh, um, our own um, our record company and management or whatever decisions. Right. It wasn't it wasn't to be, and then probably it was a good decision, but it's a dream. It's a dream for me. I often think about it, you know. Um, but will that album have its day, guys? I'm always saying, even Judas Priest, we've, we've released some records too early, some records a bit too late. It's a lot of it's about timing, so hopefully that record one day, and it might be next week, it might be next year, it might be 50 years from now, when we're all long um, gone, um, that something might happen with that musical. Who knows? I might do a remake of Top Gun and, and use some of the songs. Well, they are. I think, I think they are doing a, a remake of Top But I'll, I'll give you this. Uh, I'll give you this. In, in a creative space, uh, or in the... In the cre- absolutely... Uh, a, a perfect album to do creatively to, to push boundaries is, is, is a fair, fair thing to do. Uh, Judas Priest with the discography you had at, at some point you have the right to be, I don't want to say selfish, but you have the right to say, Hey, you know what? We've given you uh hellbent for leather. We've given you uh, ram it down. We've get, we're going to do this one for us, which is fair. Cause that's, that's part of the spoils of being around for 30, 40 years. At some point you get to say, Hey, um, but I was looking at it mostly from a marketing point of view. It, and it, it, you know, marketing-wise, it it did sort of seem like a, like a misstep because people wanted Angel of Retribution Part Two, or they wanted Painkiller Part Two, or they wanted Hellbent for Leather Part Two, and they were presented with this, and they went, ah, okay. And so, and then of course the tour, you know, in interviews at the time, and I had done one with Rob. He said, well, we're going to do a whole presentation and we're going to do the whole album from top to bottom. And then you go out with motorhead and heaven and hell and you play three, four songs or five songs. And I, and I think that that sort of also set it back. Cause had you done the entire thing as a production and, and even done an off Broadway, people would have gone, Oh yeah, look at that. That's spectacular. And, 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 and I'm not putting down the songs, the sound, the songs are great, but I think, Maybe like five years later, it would have been even better. But anyway, it's 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 an accomplishment. It really, is an accomplishment. I think so, Mitch. I think so. Um, I will see what the future holds. But uh, you know, time wasn't exactly on our side. So when you feel that you want to do something like that, you know, it was probably better done 
and so it is completed. And um, I say the prison machine is still rolling um, across the planet, and that's the main thing, um, doing what it always has done. Yeah, and and I wouldn't be uh, adverse to having that at some point, five years, ten years down the road, become a play somewhere. Because I really think, like you said, there is a lot of potential, sort of like a Tommy rock opera thing going on there. Um, and let's hope it happens. And uh, there you go. Uh, KK, a, a great pleasure to to speak with you yet again. And uh, absolutely great uh, great luck with Heavy Duty, Days and Night, and Judas Priest, a new book, or, or co-written, of course, with Mark Eglinton. Uh, just a fantastic job, a great read. Uh, I encourage everybody to go pick it up. And uh, voila, merci. Mitch, can't thank you enough again. And and to all of the listeners, and, and, and as I said before, <clears throat> you know, uh, thanks for all the good work that you do. And thanks to uh, for all the listeners um, for, you know, all of their um, support over the years and uh, and again i hope to see you uh in the near future take care everyone yeah absolutely and and i'll and i'll finish with uh, with our fabulous folks from venom inc they they told me that if they come back to montreal and play the heavy montreal festival they're going to make sure that you are there as a special guest to uh, play one song with them so let's hope that happens Sounds like a plan, Mitch. Thank you very much, mate. Thank you, sir. Have a good day. Okay, mate. Cheers. Okay, goodbye. Bye-bye. The Westwood One Podcast Network. Hey, guys. Looking to last longer and go a few extra rounds? Well, if sex was an Olympic sport, Blue Chew would be banned. So get over to bluechew.com. Blue Chew is the first chewable with the same active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis. Chewables work faster than pills, up to twice as fast, and you can take them anytime, day or night, even on a full stomach. And of course, Blue Chew is cheaper than those other two, so this is a no-brainer. And you don't have to go to a doctor's office or spend time waiting in a pharmacy line because Blue Chew ships straight to your door office in discreet packaging. So I've got a great deal for you. Visit Blue chew.com and get your first shipment free when you use promo code rock talk that's bluechew.com promo code rock talk and you pay just five dollars for shipping remember hey guys clay thompson here by now you probably know that i like to read the newspaper i just like that old school feel but when i'm traveling or too busy to grab a paper i like to go digital it doesn't matter how you read the news it just matters that you read it that's how i stay informed read the paper or go digital it's up to you. Be like Clay. Subscribe today and get local coverage of everything that matters. Read the paper. Subscribe to digital or print by going to clayoffer.com. It's news delivered your way. Brought to you by the Mercury News, East Bay Times, and Marin Independent Journal. Bluechew.com, promo code Rock Talk. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. And a very big thank you to K.K. Downing for the not only interview, but second interview, of course, his book, Heavy Duty, Days and Nights in Judas Priest, out now. Buy it. I have read it. It is a compelling, compelling story. Speaking of compelling stories, we will move over to Todd Rundgren. He is taking part in celebrating David Bowie. That also includes Adrian Ballou. Mr. Niven, welcome back, of course, and uh Todd, you've told me many things off the record or not in interview situations about Todd. You find him interesting. You find him. So, so talk to me about Todd Rundgren. 
Well, I use the term nerd, and I don't mean that in a disparaging way at all. Um, I use it to suggest that here is somebody who has got a keen intelligence. Um, he was an engineer, a writer, a performer. Uh, he was well at the forefront of recognizing the potentials of the internet and social media. Um, his work has included uh, working with people like the Paul Butterfield Blues Band, which is a seminal, seminal entity. He worked with the band. Um, he worked with uh, Jim Steinman on Bat Out of Hell. He worked with XTC. And I think to um, your, your amusement, he worked with Cheap Trick as well. That's right. Uh, Produced a Cheap Trick uh, album. Yeah, obviously a very intelligent, a very sharp guy. Um, and also a really good guy. He claimed paternity of a famous young lady to protect her from... Um, the hurt that she might get if she found out that he wasn't her daddy. Um, Liv Tyler. He, he, he was the one who signed her birth certificate and looked after her um, all the way through her childhood. Yeah, he, uh, yeah, that, and that's that's an interesting story that he did. That I just I just want to get right back here to the uh, next position, please album he did with Cheap Trick. What what I like about that album is that it held up all these years when it first came out. You know, it was 83 and, and, and Cheap Trick had sort of fallen off. You know, they were going down and the album was quirky, but Cheap Trick is quirky. And, and I would consider Todd to be quirky, perhaps wrongly. Well, they don't come, they don't come any quirkier than XTC. Right. But if, if, we're, gonna, if, if we're going to introduce uh, some, some music to those who are listening who haven't heard him before... Let's suggest they go and listen to an album called Something Anything, which I think was the apex of his recording, career. personal recording career. And also a, a subsequent album to that that I used to have called Todd. And I, I, I've got very good fond memories of the Todd record too. They're both double albums and they were both really good. And there's a track called I Saw the Light that I think was a big hit for him. If you want to know, what, you know who he was as a musician, that's where you go. All right. Well, let me let me just quickly ask you about that. He has produced every album that he's ever been involved with. From your perspective, is that wow, way to go, kudos for for doing that, or is like, hmm, maybe at some point he needed to step out and let some other ears have a listen and offer some guidance? Because I've always felt that when you self-produce, you somehow lose that 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 outside perspective that sometimes can be make it better. But of course you lose the control, good or bad being your own producer. It's horses for courses. And, I, and far be it for me to um, suggest that he didn't have the capability or the capacity to be his own producer. Oh no, I, absolutely but has I, the talent. I, I'd, but. I'd, I'd look at it this way. For me, performance is a moment of pure subjectivity and producing is a moment of pure objectivity. And you need whoever's performing, whether be they singing or playing, to really get entirely within the atmosphere of the music, the content of the music, the feel of the music, and connect themselves on a soul level to that music. And that's a very, very subjective process. And you need to have somebody you can trust to be objective and go, 
you got it, uh, but maybe if we do this or do that, or let's take one more take at this, you're getting really close, or somebody to stand there in the, in, the, in the control room and go, I've got goosebumps up and down my arms. Don't touch a thing. That was absolutely amazing. That was absolutely wonderful. We've got it. Um, performance is subjective. Producing is objective. And for me, the perfect situation is when you have one who can be one, one who can be the other, and they both know and trust each other. Yeah. See, and I, 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 I tend to agree that it takes an outside set of ears to come in and listen and offer, you know, an objective or a subjective point of view and say, hey, this works, this doesn't. But anyway, but he has the talent. And just quickly back to that Cheap Trick album, the best song on there is called Heaven's Fallen. And of course, it was written by Todd Rundgren. So there you go. And uh, celebrating Bowie, you can have a, head over to celebrating davidbowie.com. That is celebrating davidbowie.com. So you've got Todd and Adrian Ballou and many others. And then real quick, before we head over to the interview, let me just remind you that when it comes to hiring, you don't have time to waste. You need help getting to your short list of qualified candidates fast. That's why you need Indeed com post a job in minutes set up screener questions then zero in on qualified candidates using an intuitive online dashboard and when you need to hire fast ac- accelerate your results with sponsored jobs new users can try for free at indeed.com slash podcast that's indeed.com slash podcast terms conditions and quality standards apply and as always when talking about quality standards well, that's what Todd offered in his records, producing and all that. So let's get right over to the one, the only, Todd Rundgren. We are speaking with Todd Rundgren. Of course, uh, he is part of the Celebrating David Bowie uh, tour that is coming up, uh, playing Harpa in Iceland. Let me talk about those two shows, and then we'll, we'll expand into the greater meaning of David Bowie. But these, these two shows that are coming up in October are going to feature... Uh, the band and the, the, the orchestra, very different nights, both nights, the 7th and 8th. Talk to me a little bit about that experience and, and heading over there. Well, I have never been to Iceland before, so I'm looking forward to this just for that reason alone. Um, this particular production actually has been out before uh, playing in Europe, and I believe may have done uh, something in the States as well. Um, so this is my first outing with this particular lineup. Although uh, the band contains some people that I have worked with before. Um, yeah, this came about actually kind of relatively quickly because um, the first time I spoke to anyone regarding this was during uh, South the recent South by Southwest, which I guess was in is that in February or usually in March February or something. Yeah, yeah, I think it was in February, and uh, just kind of came at me out of the blue. I happened to have a hole in the schedule during that time period, and so I thought this is the kind of thing that I enjoy doing collaborating on um, special events and things like that. So, um, so I was in and I have, uh, uh, I guess some songs assigned to me and some other roles during the show. Uh, we share the vocals amongst a number of, uh, 
a number of players. Adrian Ballou is has been with this particular lineup for a while, so he'll be there. Um, aside from that, I'm you know excited as excited as everyone else to find out you know how this is all going to play out because uh, as I say, I'm, I haven't done this particular thing before. So 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 talk to me about about wanting to do it. What what is it about David Bowie? that makes you sort of say, okay, I want to go pay homage to the man. I want to be part of this production because, you know, you've done the, the utopia thing earlier this year. You of course do your own thing. What is it about that? That says, okay, I got to step back and I'm going to go pay homage to, to David Bowie. And, and what is it about him as an artist particularly? Well, I guess it's the, you know, the, um, the variety of material that, phases that he's gone through and the different approaches to the music. It's much more interesting than an artist who essentially has, you know, settled into a style and it's sort of relatively the same, everything that they do. And that also opens it up, you know, to, um, a broader number of, uh, of interpretations, uh, amongst the various people in the band. So I think that's, you know, one, um, one appealing aspect about it. Um, the other thing is that David Bowie is always a very sort of theatrical performer. And I enjoy a little bit of theatrics with my uh, musical performance. And so I think it'll be uh, fun and intriguing in that sense. Nobody can just kind of like stand there and sing a David Bowie song. You have to interpret it somehow, not only musically, but in, some sense physically. So, so let, let me just sort of parallel this to your career because you've always been very forward-thinking in what you've done. You, you've, you know, you never are. You've never been the nostalgia guy when you come out and do a new concert production and stuff. You, you don't look back. You, you, you always move forward with the music. Um, did you at, at at some point sort of pattern yourself on what David Bowie was doing, or did you see yourself as a David Bowie, or did you just sort of like that freedom to you know to to pursue your own musical vision? I think you know David Bowie and I had sort of parallel paths, but not necessarily in any way um, greatly influencing the other. Um, I had already had a couple of albums out and was doing record production and such. By the time I heard Hunky Dory, there was a previous David Bowie record, but I hadn't heard it. So by the time I heard Hunky Dory, I was already well into the business, uh, producing records for other people and making my own records. I wasn't hadn't evolved much yet as a live performer because I spent so much of my life in the studio. But uh, I did see the, you know, the very first performance of of Ziggy Stardust at Radio City Music Hall. He was in the audience to to witness it, and um, and by uh, some, I guess, uh, second or third hand means of influence, uh, eventually uh, got into the sort of theatrical. Uh, presentations because I hired a guy who did uh, costumes and makeup. And I think he was being influenced by what was happening, you know, in David Bowie's constant reinventions. And so I wound up being sort of a palette for my, um, 
for my makeup and costumer, uh, who in turn, I guess, was being influenced not only by David Bowie, but it, in some measure by, you know, the costumes and makeup that went along with the whole Ziggy Stardust phase. Right. And such a great phase. For you as a musician, what is what is primary? What's more important, the, 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 the music or the presentation? Is it the performance and the show? And all the costumes, or is it music at at the root that comes first? Well, the music has to be worth, you know, all the pomp and circumstance that you throw up behind it. So, you know, in that sense, you know, (laughs) in that sense, to me, Kiss's music was just an excuse, you know, to put on costumes and, um, and giant, you know, platform heels and blow flames and stuff. Uh, the music to me was so flimsy, you know, that it really was just all about the theatrics. And I think for most people, their response to Kiss was initially the makeup, the costumes, and the theatrics. And then later, um, (laughs) they would rock and roll all night and party every day. (laughs) But, uh, you know, in the case of someone like David Bowie, I and probably most people experienced the music before you ever saw him perform. And so you already had some attachment to the, you had some attachment to the music and possibly some sort of uh, vision of how it might be presented. Uh, David Bowie was not the first to uh, employ that kind of theatrics. I remember seeing uh, an early Genesis gig when, Peter Gabriel was still the front man and that was highly dependent on theatrics and costume and makeup and that sort of thing. Uh, You could go back to the crazy world of Arthur Brown, which depended on a flaming headdress and a, and a guy wire to fly him onto the stage. So uh, the theatrics, I guess is, you know, has always been there in some, to some degree in music, Uh, you know, screaming Jay Hawkins who pops out of a coffin when he does his set <laughs> and wears the Dracula outfit. So, uh, so the theatrics, I think was always, you know, part of it. I personally, you know, I'm always disappointed when I go to see a band and I realize that they're wearing their street clothes and that they didn't bother, you know, do anything at all before they went on stage. I realize that that's sort of a modern, modern ethos, you know, that's handed down from the uh, grunge era, which, which you know, had uh, actually represented a style and a presentation of its own. But now it's just become de rigueur to, uh, you know, to walk on stage as if you just, you know, left your day job. Yeah, you know, and by the way, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned Genesis because uh, you're you're right, they really did you know, combine the two. The only other one that I think is is up there with David Bowie might be Alice Cooper to to be able to do that. And and you're also right about the ethos of, of today. I mean, I just saw Judas Priest in Deep Purple on on Tuesday, and Judas Priest had these nice outfits and the leathers, and then Deep Purple came out, and I, not to insult anybody, but it looked as though they were about to clean out the attic. And I was like, Yeah, they look like their own. <laughs> they look like their own roadies. <laughs> I mean, musically, the, the musically it stands up because they're great musicians. But visually, it was like, 
uh, I'm, it's like I'm watching my uncle play guitar. So, you know. Yeah, but, you might, might as well just listen to the record. What you imagine is more exciting than what you're actually seeing. <laughs> it really was. Um, just quickly, on, on production, you've, of course, produced uh, many artists, including Cheap Trick and up here, uh, The Pursuit of Happiness, because I'm, I'm in Canada. And, and you've produced all your albums and the Utopia albums. I just want to ask you, as a producer, when you're going into a session, um, how do you, do you approach it the same way, whether you're producing yourself or Utopia or and other bands, or is there sort of a different machination between, okay, this is my thing, and now I need to be more whatever for Cheap Trick, or I need more whatever for Pursuit of... Ha- how do you approach producing in the different circumstances? Well, it's different for me because I've gotten into the habit over the decades of using the studio as a songwriting tool. In other words, I don't go out of the studio, learn a whole song on the piano, and then go into the studio and and play it. I use the studio itself as a compositional tool. I will come up with choruses and verses and move them around and and modify them until I'm satisfied with them. And usually the very last aspect is coming up with the lyrics and melody to the song. But if I'm working with someone else in order for me to understand where the record is going, I need to hear the material before we go into the studio. I learned from experience early on that if you just take for granted that an act has the material to make a complete record, you may wind up at some point discovering that you're a couple of songs short and then the whole process grinds to a halt while you're trying to, you know, write some more or, or fix up something that you didn't really intend to record, but now you have to rewrite because you're short of material. So I have gotten into the habit of, wanting to hear all of the material before we go into the studio to make sure that there's enough of it that once we start the process, we can continue to completion without having to suddenly get into a writing phase, which is not as easy as it sounds. So, you know, people often need a certain particular circumstance to write in and the studio may not be that circumstance. Some people are used to it, as I am, but I think for a lot of acts, they're not used to, you know, to have people like over their shoulders waiting on them, you know, because the clock is ticking, you know, okay, write that song and you got to have it done in an hour. Uh, That usually doesn't happen. So um, I'd much rather have all of that work done outside of the studio so that we get, when we get into the studio, the band can focus principally on performing the music in a convincing manner because that's another problem if you're not sure about what the song means and this is what i often take to task uh in a a songwriter is if they have not fully developed the lyrics and so cannot therefore fully commit to a performance of the lyrics because they're not sure what they mean Often people will do things because they rhyme. I had a songwriter, he said he just likes the feel of certain words in his mouth, even if what comes out is total nonsense. So, yeah, I like to make sure before we go into the studio that the songs all are, are all of a certain quality and that the lyrics make sense 
so that when it's time to perform it, everybody knows what they're going for. Yeah, and see that, and that's 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 a great approach. Uh, just quickly on new music, a lot of bands that had started, you know, 30, 40 years ago. They go out as heritage acts. They play the greatest hits. They do 12 songs. They get off the stage. You've never done that. And in fact, you keep making new music and new music and new music. Uh, talk to me for, for you, the importance of, of staying active, having an album like White Knight and, and keep moving the forward. Because technically, you could go do something, anything, the the cabaret show and, and you know, the Vegas act and, and fill it out and people would come. But you don't want to do that. Uh, just quickly talk to me about the importance of making new music and staying active and, and creating new ideas and not just relying on what you did in 1972. Well, there's a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, I'm able to do that. And the reason why I was able to do that was because I had two careers. I was producing records for other people and doing quite well financially at that. So I never felt the pressures that the average artist would feel when they make their own music um, to it, the commercial pressures. In other words, if you don't succeed commercially with your music to some degree, then you won't get a record deal and people won't buy concert tickets and you'll have to find another line of work. But I was fortunate in that I had already had another line of work. And so every time I made a record, I was completely free to do whatever I felt like. And so the records turned out to be exercises in varying degrees of self-education and self-indulgence. Um, I would use the record as an opportunity to experiment with new styles to broaden my musical horizons. I would um, ultimately come to realize that the music is since it is my principal means of expression, it's also the way that I learn about myself by objectivizing ideas in musical form. Once I get them out of my head, I can look at them or listen to them as it were and say, wow, that's, that makes sense. Or conversely, I say that makes no sense at all. I need to work on that. So it's been something of a selfish enterprise for as long as I've done it. But I think the end result of that is it was a more interesting career to follow than someone who did all of their principal work, like in a five or 10 year period, and then just recycle that for the rest of your career. And I think that's the reason why I still have an audience It's because of that unexpected quality, because you don't know what to expect, but you know that I have worked very hard in order to realize it. Um, and the other benefit of that is since I'm not te technically not a nostalgia act, a younger audience doesn't feel guilty coming to the show. <laughs> and so it kept, it's kept my audience somewhat refreshed. It's kept, uh, new people and young and most importantly, younger people coming in because if you are, as I say, a legacy artist, your audience is literally dying off, like literally dying off. And so at a certain point, you know, you're just going to see the oldest, grayest people in the world coming to your shows. And that's a little depressing unless you think of yourself as like an old gray person. 
I think most people, uh, ideally at my shows, and I think probably at a lot of shows that people go to, one of the reasons why they go is to relive their youth, is to feel young again, you know, is to enjoy the music that they enjoyed when they were just, when they were young and carefree and didn't have any responsibilities and that sort of thing. So I see the importance of that. And, and I see why people would continue to go see a legacy artist. But that to me seems like you're, that you're not getting anything else out of it. You know, you don't get anything else out of the performance. You don't get any new insights, you know, or deeply felt emotions. You know, you essentially are just wallowing in, in, in reverie or something like that. And that's well, not for me. Well, you, you get a 75 minute distraction. Which is, you know, which is what it is, you know? Yeah, well, I guess that's, you know, what that's what a lot of people are paying for. They just want to get out of their everyday lives for, you know, for an hour or two, something like that. And some people get very disgruntled if you make them uncomfortable during that process, you know, by requiring them to listen to something they haven't heard before or... Um, or something that, you know, my particular case, half the audience wants to hear and the other half the audience doesn't care about. <laughs> and and I'm, I'm keeping my eye on the clock. I know I know we're at 20 minutes, uh, but I'll just finish with this real quick. Uh, you did the Utopia 2018 tour. Just, uh, just a quick comment about that, because you had resisted for many years to do anything Utopia in terms of touring. You finally did it. Uh, did it feel good? Did it feel bad? Did it feel... Do you want to do it again? I mean, you know, just just quickly, Utopia 2018. How was it for you? Well, I enjoyed it principally. It was a lot of work for you know what ultimately was about seven weeks on the road, and uh, often these you know these recreations or these revivals, that's kind of the form they take. Um, I've done uh, recreations of a Wizard of True Star that took months to to get to the stage and only ran for about two and a half weeks. So, you know, sometimes these things, um, in this particular instance that, you know, years in the making, you, you could say, because of the, the, first of all, the consciousness of the desire and the, on the part of the fans, you know, to have this happen and realizing how important it is to do it properly because of that. And finding the circumstance that would allow us to have the time and the resources to do it, especially given since half the band had kind of gone off the musical grid. Roger was working at Electronic Arts and Willie was working at a company, and I don't remember the name of it, but in Las Vegas, a gaming company. And they weren't free to just up and leave their jobs any old time. So the years that it took to get it together often were spent just trying to figure out whether we could even find, you know, the, the resources and the synchronicity to mount it in a serious way. We were almost there. One of my criteria was I don't, I don't want to go see a band where there's only like one original member or two original members, you know, and they, and they pretend to be, you know, the original band. I wanted to have all original Utopian members in the band, and we managed to do that as originally scheduled. Then we discovered um, 
just about 10 days before we were supposed to begin rehearsals that Ralph Shuckett was not going to be able to tour and had to find a replacement in like no time. Yeah. And you went to Facebook for that. I saw that. Well, we went to Facebook. We went everywhere. As it turned out, we, you know, it was more of an inside job, I guess. I asked my son who lives in Portland, who was the, who's young, he's in his twenties and he's, very much into music. So he knows about that generation of musicians. And I was thinking if we just ask for, you know, people who were utopia fans who are not prepared for this gig, I have no idea what we're going to get. We got like 400 responses, a great number of them admitted they couldn't sing, you know, so they were kind of like out of consideration. Many of them didn't realize that we were doing, you know, essentially the, from the beginning to the end of Utopia, the entire phase from the original six-piece um, prog rock, six or seven-piece, I can't remember, but you know the original prog rock fusion bands that was mostly instrumental to the more uh, alt-pop bands in the end that was mostly you know songwriting and vocals. And um, so I inquired of my son in uh, in Portland. Oregon, where he lives, who's the best keyboard player, you know, and he sent me a name, his name was Gil Esaias, and we were able to find out more about him because he had a, uh, a copious uh, internet presence. He had a lot of videos. Some of them were like lessons of things that he, uh, uh, exercises for other keyboard players, uh, songs of his own, a 15 minute interview with him. And so we kind of knew everything about him just from uh, what he had done on the internet. I asked him if he wanted a gig, and he took it, and he filled <laughs> he filled that gap admirably. Um, it was amazing. He hadn't he hadn't been born when the last Utopia gig took place, <laughs> so um, it injected this whole other kind of level of interest into into it, despite the fact that we couldn't. Um, we couldn't recreate a full original lineup. Um, as far as doing it again, uh, we're not sure whether that, whether it's even possible to do that. We sort of like blew our wad on this. It's the kind of thing where we had to make sort of merchandising deals and arrangements with all kinds of entities to help us pull this thing off the way that it was supposed to happen. It's certainly possible for us to go out, strip everything down, remove the production, play the same songs, I suppose, in smaller venues. And what would be the point of that? You know, we're not trying to, we were trying to do a tribute to the band. We weren't trying to revive the band. (laughs) We're not going to restart Utopia again. So uh, I think we demonstrated that we were able to recreate satisfactorily most of what utopia was and there'll be a you know video document of that and otherwise we have no plans to to do it again at least not now yeah and i think that's what your fans appreciate i will of course remind everybody that uh, todd rundgren and of course celebrating david bowie are at the eldborg hall at the harper center in reykjavik iceland you can head over to harpa.is for more uh, Todd, absolute pleasure today, and uh, thank you, and have have a great Icelandic vacation, for the lack of a better word, because 
That is going to be fantastic. Beautiful country. Beautiful country. You're going to love it. So I've heard. I, you know, I tend to have a good time. Thanks. Thanks so much. Thank we'll you, sir. Have, you later. Yes, sir. Bye-bye now. Cheers. Okay. Bye-bye. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Rock Talk. And a very big thank you to Todd Rundgren. Do head out and check out Celebrating David Bowie. And, of course, once in a while he does come around with the Ringo Starr All-Star Band. He's got new music all the time, Utopia, just plenty of stuff. Uh, Todd is is definitely a lifer when it comes to music, right? Uh, it's good to be a lifer when it comes to music. It's good to be a lifer when it comes to music, but it's not good to be a lifer if that means that you're in Sing Sing. And, and that, which is the perfect segue for our, our seg into our next... Um, our next guest, Wayne Kramer of MC5, currently touring as MC50 as part of the celebration of Kick Out the Jams, his 50th anniversary. And uh, The Guardian recently wrote about his book and wrote about uh, Wayne that he is a career criminal who dabbled in music. And I, I think that is an absolute fantastic, fantastic uh, pull quote from that article. And, and I actually asked Wayne about that uh, in the interview. I, I said to him, hey, are you a career criminal that dabbled in music? So, so stick around for that. But you're more of that epoch than I am, because uh, I was born when that album came out and, and you, you were living it. Um, is, is that nice to say? <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's a nice way to say that I'm as old as the hills. Um, <laughs> no, but but I mean, you, you know, you had the the flower power child stuff going on, and then Detroit. And then let's talk just real quick about Detroit MC5 and the Alice Cooper people and the Ted Nugents, and there was something going on Bob in Seger. Detroit. Bob, Detroit didn't. There was no flower power, right? There was no flower power stuff going on in Detroit. Um, Let's start with Detroit, and then we'll work our way into MC5 and stuff. But did you get have a you sense? To, have you been to Detroit? Yes, uh, twice. It's and a, It's a hard, hard city. I mean, the softest it ever was was in the Motown period. But that is a hard environment, and it's been through really tough times. So it's not really surprising that it generated sons of Detroit who were tough in their attitude. Um, as we were coming into this, I mean, I, I think I asked whether you thought he was a political outlaw or an outlaw politician. Um, rock and roll has always had a very firm pillar in the center of it um, that is the outlaw mentality, that it kicks against the complacent, it kicks against the unthinking. Um, and that's what I got from Kick Out the Jams, um, was that attitude of question everybody, uh, question complacency, question your government. I mean, you know, I'm so old, I remember being in a period of time when there were uh, young activists who said, do not trust anybody over 30, which makes me feel a little rough now. But there was a period of time there where things needed to be questioned, when the Nixon government needed to be questioned, when the complacency of the Eisenhower 50s mentality needed to be questioned, when we needed to find out, yeah, who killed Kennedy and why, um, and took away a sense of youthfulness and a sense of hope. Um, and, know, and innocence. And innocence. Yeah. Um, and very good observation, because obviously 
the 60s and Nixon dispelled innocence here. But America is still fundamentally immature in its politics. Uh, it never ceases to amaze me that the Republicans con the working class into believing that they care about them. And Wayne Kramer is definitely somebody who's been really political um, and obviously had a hard life. I mean, he's done time. But on the other hand, he goes to jail a lot to play a lot of shows. He's worked with Tom Morello in that way. He even uh, did a performance for Bernie Sanders on the last election go-round, I think. Um, so he's, he's definitely a political rock and roller. Oh, definitely. And and let's quickly talk about the, uh, the, the Kick Out the Jams debut album, live record. I mean, that that's just bizarre you know you want your first record to be pristine and precise and you want to get into the studio and do all kinds of tricks especially in this day and age with pro tools you want to you want to finesse it so much that it almost sucks the the, the life out of it but he just said yeah screw it we're just going to record something at the grand ballroom in detroit and that's going to be the first one just we're going to do the whole thing in whatever 60 minutes 75 minutes whatever the show was uh sort of scary right well, I think that that shows a determination of, that they wanted to be seen and heard as raw, immediate, um, as having a very definite um, sense of power to what they thought they were doing. Um, you know, you think of Iggy Pop and the Stooges around the same period of time. Um, there was definitely that pre-punk move to, no, we're not going to be pristine. We're not going to go to Abbey Road. We've got an attitude, and we're going to show it. Yeah, and and show it they do, and it's amazing that 50 years later, it still has, uh, it, it still echoes, it still has a, a truth and a purity to it. Just a, an incredible band, of course. The They are playing in Montreal, by the way, Corona, at the Théâtre Corona on September 18th, which is uh, tomorrow. I will be there. But uh, there we go. Let, let us get over to... Uh, oh, just real quick. Uh, I, I always love this. Rolling Stone magazine, when they reviewed Kick Out the Jams, of course, threw all kinds of hate at it because that, that glorious magazine that gives Yoko Ono albums five stars out of five stars, anything that has a little sort of piss and vinegar and a little bit of, of je ne sais quoi to it gets immediately dumped upon with the incredibly unfavorable... And then, of course, in 2003, when they put out their 500 greatest albums of all time list, they have a little bit of revisionist history and go, oh, yeah, it's one of the greatest 500 and stick it there at number 294. So uh, Rolling Stone. We're, we're, by the way, were Rolling Stone kind to Guns N' Roses? I don't I don't recall or were, or were they, oh, there's another shitty band. Is that how did they treat your bands? Um, well, there came a point where they wanted them on the cover. So um, they knew it was a story. They knew it was um, a very strong rock and roll story. Um, it was a little hard to deny that. And the Guns N' Roses attitude was, screw them all. We're going where we're going, whether we go over you, round you, or through you. So I think Rolling Stone caught on to that and wanted to bottle it a little bit of it to sell their, their magazine. Yeah, yeah, good old Rolling Stone. But uh, let us get over to Wayne Kramer. And, of course, The Guardian describes him as the career criminal who once dabbled in music. So here he is, the one, the only career criminal musician. That's fair to say. 
Wayne Kramer. We are speaking with Wayne Kramer of MC5. The current tour is MC50. It celebrates Kick Out the Jams, one of the greatest albums in rock history. Wayne, an absolute, absolute pleasure to talk to you. You're very kind to say that. Thank you. It's uh, my pleasure uh, to have the opportunity to blab to all my mainline mellows out there. Yes, and of course, uh, I'm located in Montreal. You will be here on uh, September 18th, and that is going to be a great show. So so let's just quickly talk about this MC50 tour. It is a celebration of Kick Out the Jams, but you have got a stellar lineup in there, uh, including Kim Thale, Kim Thale, formerly of Soundgarden. Talk to me about putting this band, this sort of super group band together, and what can sort of fans expect from this celebration? Well, I think you can expect a, a balls-to-the-wall hard premier hard rock experience we 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 play really hard um we play we play loud (laughs) and we carry a a message of uh, self-determination and self-efficacy and uh uh it's been an absolute ball night after night to to play these songs play the whole album from top to bottom with with these guys uh i i was I was mostly interested in having uh, good brothers on the band, you know, guys that were, uh, you know, seasoned professionals that were good musicians, but more importantly, that were good people, that were good people to spend time with, that I enjoyed their company, uh, that have uh, some intellectual curiosity about the world around them and uh, a commitment to trying to improve things when we can. And I've, 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 I've exceeded my expectations with this band. They're terrific uh, fellows and uh, great musicians, and, and we rock unbelievably hard every night. It's really been fun. Yeah, I can't. Uh, I can't wait to see this. So uh, talk to me about the, about the album Kick Out the Jams, because when it's first released... The critics were exceptionally harsh. Talking about that social context and when it came out, what was it that it just it didn't resonate then, but now 30, 40, 50 years later, we go, yep, that was brilliant. The MC5 was the antithesis of the West Coast aesthetic. You know, you got to, if you, if you know your history, you know that this was the era of uh, Big Brother and the Holding Company and the Jefferson Airplane and the Grateful Dead. And all these musicians were uh, essentially folk musicians that bought electric guitars. And I, in my humble opinion, the rhythm sections were not very accomplished. Uh, I grew up in Detroit, and my idea of a great rhythm section was uh, James Jamerson and Benny Benjamin at Motown Records. And I didn't hear that kind of playing come from the West Coast, and I didn't hear the kind of uh, aggressive guitar driven rock that we were doing. So I, th- I think, uh, I think, uh, Jan Wenner and the, the editorial staff at Rolling Stone just decided that we were, uh, disingenuous and this music wasn't going to go anywhere. And, uh, and I don't know over the, over history, I think uh, hard rock has held up pretty well, and uh, the music of those other bands, maybe not so much. 
Yeah, it, and, and yeah. let's be serious about Rolling Stone for a second. I mean, they, they, they've put down Alice Cooper, they've put down Kiss, they put down all the hard rock bands, Black Sabbath, all of them, and yet all of you guys are still around, and all the stuff they championed, as you said, vanished as it deservingly <laughs> should have. Um, let's quickly talk about the, the book here, the, uh, the hard stuff. Incredible, incredible stories, and you, as you read through it, almost on every page, you, you, you think to yourself, "Well, he should be dead by now." Wow, you know, uh, <laughs> right? I mean, uh, even the the Guardian referred to to the book and to your story as uh, Wayne Kramer is actually a criminal who once dabbled in music. They called you a career criminal who once dabbled in music. Um, Talk to me about writing the book and what compelled you to get these stories out there, and and what are some things that people can can learn or take away from it? Well, I I I hope that um, that if someone else found themselves in a not dissimilar situation, whether it's uh, you know bad decision making in terms of you know illegitimate capitalism or drugs and alcohol abuse. Um, that they might be able to see that um, I found a way out and I found a way to, to rebuild uh, the self-respect and the dignity that I lost on my trip to the gutter. Um, and they could too. I mean, you know, I am not unique in as much as uh, the, the, tools that were offered to me are available to anyone. And, uh, you know, when I was ready for a change, it wasn't that hard to find people that were willing to help me change. I, I think, uh, you know, things that used to be my, my greatest shame and embarrassment today end up being my greatest gifts because I can say to someone that's going through the same things I went through that I, I know how they feel because I did that too. And uh, sometimes that's all a person needs to know that they're not alone uh, in these challenges and that, that there are solutions. There are solutions. Uh, talk to me about that. The moment of epiphany at some point, as you said, you're dragging down to the gutter what was that moment where you realized, okay, enough's enough? What was it? The look on a, on a girlfriend's face? Was it? A, was it a, a child? Was it just I can't get up in the morning? Where did that that light go on and go? Oh, okay, this is bottom, well, and now I, I got to go ahead. Yeah, I I had been exposed to to some of the thinking in uh, in. Uh, some of the therapeutic modes, you know, we're all familiar with the 12 step um, approach. Right. And, and uh, I, of course I rejected that as, uh, you know, that I was special. (laughs) And of course I'm not special. Um, But I, I think I talk about it in the book that uh, I was on a flight returning from a European tour and decided it would be okay to take some codeine and start drinking. And, uh, you know, I came to with a uh, female flight attendant uh, assuring me that she was going to have me arrested when we landed in the United States uh, because of my bad behavior on the flight. And it, it was in that particular moment that I 
uh, had an uh, epiphany that I saw who I really was. Uh, uh, maybe I thought I was one thing, but what I really was was a stoned, drunken rock and roll asshole. And, uh, and uh, I, I couldn't bear it. And uh, I decided that I couldn't live this way any further. And, uh, and then I went and asked some guys to, to help me. Given where you are now, um, and what's the word for it? Can I say spiritually? Is that is that an appropriate word to say? But but given where you are now in in sort of this life road, for the lack of a better word, do you look back at it with a lot of regret and say I shouldn't have done that, or do you embrace it and say you know what, all those experiences led me to where I am today, and I just wouldn't change anything? It's the latter. I I certainly uh, don't regret anything, and. Uh, Things that I thought were my, uh, you know, most shameful moments and activities turn out to be my greatest gifts. As you're going through this, uh, the career does take a left turn. It does it does suffer a bit. Uh, you know, promoters are angry, managers are angry, bandmates and stuff are angry. Talk about restarting the career and sort of re-getting back to the top and, and getting everybody to, to trust and respect and and getting the band to this celebration of MC50, because the show, from every account, is spectacular. Um, but talk to me about that road of getting people to believe in you again. Well, I, I think it's a matter of you have to be who you say you are, uh, you know, of, of uh, being authentic and uh, being responsible. And uh, if, I, if I say I'm going to do something, I work pretty damn hard to make sure I do that. And that uh, people can trust me. And uh, so I was able to reach out to some of my fellow musicians um, who I held in, in great esteem, uh, both for their character and their musicianship. And they were willing to take a chance with me and, and, uh, and come out here on tour and, uh, uh, rehearse hard and play hard. And, um, you're right. The shows have been spectacular. It's been very exciting. It's an absolute ball playing with these guys and, and celebrating this music with the, the people everywhere we've gone. Um, I'm listen, I'm, I am a fortunate man. So, so then quickly talk to me about the future, because we do have this celebration, but the tour will end, of course. What do we do next? Do we get into the studio and record a new album with these guys and, and offer new music? Do we do a, a, new, a sort of a 2018 version of Kick Out the Jams live? What are some of the plans that you see moving forward? Well, nothing is formalized at this point. It's still too early in the, in the process. Uh, let us get further down the road uh, and, we, you know, we'll be able to talk about it and just see if uh, if there's any enthusiasm for for that idea. Uh, I'm I keep an open mind uh, and uh, I, I, I try not to limit the future with my uh, my predictions about things. <laughs> I I'm I often um, shoot low. <laughs> Well, hey, you know, that's a, that's a good way for success. Uh, shoot low, aim high, I guess. But um, looking back on the M5 or MC5, sorry, MC5 career, sure. uh, looking no back, problem. you know, when, when you came out, the band was, 
I don't want to say ignored, but it but it really was sort of a blip on the screen. But the music was everlasting, and and the movement created was everlasting. Talk to me about why you think so many people over the years look back to those three albums and look back to that time and say, you know what, this band was unique and the influence immeasurable. Well, I, I, I don't think we were ignored when we first came out as much as we were criticized. Uh, I, I think that we came on so strong that a lot of uh, certainly, you know, music business types, um, I think we scared them. I think, uh, you know, a rock band that's also uh, armed uh, armed militant political group um, was more than they cared to take on. Um, but musically, uh, we put a lot of effort into creating music that would have what we used to term historical validity. In other words, is this song we're trying to work on uh, of substance that's not subject to the decay of time? You know, is this um, a fad or a, a current trend that'll be passe in two years or five years? Or is this something that um, is a style of music? you know, style being eternal and fashion being temporary. Um, will this uphold, up, will it hold up over time? And uh, I've been uh, uh, gratified to, to go out and play this stuff every night. And it's, it feels absolutely contemporary. It feels like this is, this is rock music of the moment of today. Um, so I, I think in some sense, you know, uh, we were right about uh, the effort that we put into the music. You know, our, our, the MC5's music was rooted in the fundamental musics of Chuck Berry and Little Richard uh, with an eye to John Coltrane and Sun Ra. But the roots of the music uh, have sustained us well. I mean, you get up on stage and start rocking some Chuck Berry, people will respond positively. Chuck is, is fantastic, and I have to say, I saw George Thorogood three times this year, and he covered some Chuck, and it, it, that music is, is everlasting. It's, it's beautiful. Now, um, just quickly, Delicate Steve uh, redid American Roos uh, with you, featuring Wayne Kramer. Um, talk to me about that, because I think it speaks to your point that, given the current political climate, the music that you did 50 years ago still speaks to the audience. Yeah, you know, Steve, uh, I met Steve through some mutual friends and he, he asked me if I would come and play on this recording session that he wanted to record uh, the American Ruse. And I was happy to do it. He's a uh, wonderfully talented young man and I enjoyed the process. Um, but the, the fundamental uh, contradictions that inspired us 50 years ago um, some of them sadly have returned to our national discourse and, you know, we find ourselves with another wretched grifter, uh, in the white house who has utter contempt for the rule of law. And I say that as a man who has served a federal prison term, I have a complete, um, respect for the rule of law. I believe in the rule of law, but obviously 
um, the the uh, the man in in the uh, driver's seat of America uh, has a great contempt for the rule of law and sees it as a, a, an impediment to his own personal gain. Um, so we find ourselves in a situation where uh, the fundamental principles of democracy that uh, it's incumbent on each of us to participate. It's not just a concept or an idea. It's something that we have to do. We have to get up off the couch and we have to go out and vote. We have to go out and meet other people and organize um, because we're the ones that can determine um, our future. Uh, you know, if we abdicate that, as many did during the last presidential election, then this is the result we get. It is. And of course, from the Canadian perspective, it's a little different because we're sort of on the outside looking in. And of course, it's it's. You know, it's it's always something important to see what our neighbors are doing, but it's, it really is. It's like, oh, OK, look at that. Uh, and then I'll finish with this. Yep. I, I know we're running out of time here, but uh, just quickly, musically, like we talked about before, there, there was always a message. And, and you had to say something that had sort of an inter- eternal kind of um, zeitgeist, to, zeitgeist to it for... Is it okay though, just to do music that that's just fun? I mean, does music always have to have a message? Is there, is is it acceptable artistically just to talk about rock and roll all night and party every day? I think so. Yeah, I I don't think everyone has to to articulate a, a, a political dynamic or a, a position on things. Uh, uh, you know, rock and roll is uh, political by its very nature. Uh, art and culture ha- have a political component, whether you recognize it or not. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you just if it's just about dancing and expressing yourself and having fun, that's certainly a viable message. And uh, you know, amusement is uh, important to people. I mean, distraction is important. To, you know, people's lives can be kind of uh, rough sometimes, and. You can lose yourself in art. Um, that's one of the one of the purposes of art, you know, tell our stories and and uh, and inspire us. Yeah, and I, and I can't wait. And of course, MC uh, Fifty on tour right now. Uh, Wayne, an absolute pleasure. I know we ran through this because they told us fifteen minutes on the dot, and you gave me nineteen. So thank you for the extra time. You're Absol- very welcome. Absolute pleasure, and I will see you, I guess, on uh, Tuesday in or next Tuesday in Montreal. Yeah, yeah. Please come backstage and say hi. Yes, absolutely. We'll do that. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Cheers now. Bye-bye. From the Westwood One Podcast Network. On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now. Driving. At your desk. Maybe at the gym. But you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach and see a rocket launch or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com.